0: chapter 5 and verse 17. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Jesus talking to the the people of his day and he says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. I can tell you this verse really struck a chord with me some years ago and uh, started me on a certain journey of thought. Jesus is telling the reason, the, the, the physical reason he came to this earth. Anytime you see something like these verses, when there is a because statement, or I came for this purpose, you really want to put an intent up and pay attention. He's saying that he didn't come to destroy the law. What is the law, biblically speaking? It's the Old Testament, and specifically it's those first five books. And it's really it's amazing when you start to get sensitive to how often Jesus pointed back to that, how many times he quoted from there. You know, the book of Deuteronomy is not something that we would consider exciting material. Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy more than anything else. It's kind of remarkable to think about. He didn't come to destroy it or the prophets. So that's Isaiah and Jeremiah, the big ones. And Jonah, Obadiah, all those small ones, he didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. Now what does that mean? We don't even use that word much or that language in today's world. What does it mean to fulfill something? It first implies that there is kind of a prediction or a a prophecy that was put forth first. And Jesus is saying that all that stuff from a couple thousand years ago that was written down, I'm come to fulfill that. And that really, really starts to expand when you accept a certain premise. And that is that the 66 books of the Bible are not a random shotgun approach of just some information from Jonah and some from Isaiah and some from Jeremiah. Some that Moses wrote. No, it's not a scattered approach. But at all, it has a specific design. Every page of it. And that every detail of it is all oriented toward getting the reader to understand one concept. Verse 18. Verily I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass. You ever met somebody that exaggerates their language? I get accused of that because I I do do that sometimes. But you make things sound a little bigger than they are. Jesus is talking about something kind of big here. Until heaven and earth pass away. That's a big event. Has that happened recently? That, that won't happen until you get to the end. Until the physical earth and the current physical heaven, till it be wiped away. And a new one? Not one jot or one tittle shall in any wise pass from the law until it is all fulfilled. Now the language there really indicates in detail one jot or one tittle. In the Hebrew language, a jot and a tittle, it's kind of referring to what we would say the dotting of the I, the crossing of every T, but it's even more minute than that. There is some Hebrew language in their alphabet that has just a tiny little curve in a script, almost like an apostrophe. And Jesus is saying that every part of that is important. These verses are drawing attention to the fact of detail. Now we mentioned I think that the two biggest discoveries of my life, maybe, are that, I mean, just for me personally, that means something to me. The 66 books of the Bible are an integrated system, a design. They're not separated at all. And every detail in those books, every name of a town, every person's name, every number, how long somebody lived, how far they walked, every single detail is thereby a design for a specific purpose. And that is to point the reader to the second. Once you accept that, then you come to the conclusion it's all pointing toward one person, Jesus. And that's what he's saying here. Not even one little script, one little apostrophe will not be changed, altered, forgotten, or done away with until it's all been fulfilled. That means we need to pay attention to Every single detail. That, that's what that says to me. It shall nowise wise pass from the law until all be fulfilled. Some weeks ago, we did a message on the book of Jonah. I want to now go back to that. Go back to the book of Jonah. We did a message on, on, on Jonah that was maybe a little bit different, but tonight might be a lot really bit different because i think this book of jonah points to jesus in such a dramatic way that it kind of you know at least i feel like i kind of understand why it this thing has been set aside you know the book of jonah is the most denigrated book probably in the bible people don't want to talk about it because the only thing they think of is some strange event being swallowed by a fish and we all know that really can happen god doesn't do i mean He does some miracles, but he doesn't do that one. And so we we get away from that. We don't want to be seen to the world who already thinks we're crazy. We don't want to be seen as having to support some fish story. And so we we just get away from it. And in doing something like that, we really rob the Bible of the ability to teach us that all of this stuff is supernatural. It's all Holy Spirit inspired for a purpose, for a reason. We went back here. We won't turn, but in Psalm 40, verse 7, it says that the volume of the book is written of me. That verse is quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, 5, 6, and 7. That the volume of the book is written of me. What do you think that means? The volume of the book. The volume is everything. It's not just one dimension, length or height. It's everything. The entire package speaks of me, of Jesus. Let's jump into this in Jonah. And let's be sensitive to the fact that how could this possibly point people toward Jesus? Jonah chapter 1, in the first verse tells us who he is. In the second verse, Arise, God tells him, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So it's, in, it's presenting us with the idea that there's a problem with wickedness. There's the initial assumption. He's sending Jonah because there's wickedness somewhere. That implies, obviously, we know from the rest of the book, but wickedness is wrong. It's a bad thing. You don't want it. But that's the reason Jonah is being sent. Verse 3, Jonah rises up to flee to get away from the presence of the Lord. But verse 4, the Lord sends out this great wind and there's a mighty tempest in the sea that the ship was like to be broken. Because man tries to run from God, all kinds of bad stuff comes into the world and into our individual lives. One of the things to learn from Jonah is you you don't want to spend your life running from God you you really don't because you see what he has at his disposal he has the wind and the waves of the dadgum ocean that he can turn at his will to do whatever he wants and someone who's trying to get away from him stands no chance God may just leave you alone and, and you can run away and be in your misery He may do something like He does here with Jonah where He doesn't even allow Jonah to run off. He brings the storm up to hold him right there. And if you're ever in a storm in life, that's when you want to turn to God. God, is is there something I need to do? Something I need to do to obey you to to get out of this. Now verse 5, The mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. The first part of that, those mariners are scared. They're scared to death. Now, they are experienced seafaring people. They have been on this route so many times. They they know the normal storms. You get the sense. They understand this is not a normal storm. And we see that from the previous verse, where God sent this storm. They know there's something supernatural about this storm whether how fast it arose or just the ferocity of it whatever it was they know that this is not normal because they start throwing over everything they get paid for the ships are paid on what they deliver and they're willing to throw everything over they're scared for their lives very interesting there at the end of verse 5 but Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep what's that remind you of? It reminds me of the Gospels, that exact same language. He and the disciples are in a ship, and there's a terrible storm. And they find him where? He's asleep. Now I want to be careful here. We are not saying that Jonah equals Jesus. Now there's a picture here, for sure. But you've got to be careful when you do this. You don't want to say, well, Jonah ran from the Lord, and he's a picture of what we're supposed to be, and we need to... Be careful how you apply this. But without question, there are some details in this story that apply directly to what we read about Jesus. In the middle of the storm, he's asleep. Verse 6 The shipmaster came to him and said, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. Do you remember what the disciples did when they found Jesus sleeping? They said the exact same language. Master, don't you care that we perish? This uses the language of a shipmaster. Every detail in the Bible it matters. And what the Holy Spirit has written here for us, it just starts to remind you of the story of Jesus. So in verse 7, they cast lots. They want to know who's at fault here. Why do we have this storm? The lot comes, falls on Jonah. In verse 8, they ask him for his occupation. Where is he from? His country, his people. Verse 9, he said unto them, I am a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So the lot falls on Jonah. And now everybody's attention is turning to the thought, well, maybe we got a way out of this. If he's the reason we're in here, we get rid of him and maybe this sea will calm down. You see, clearly, if you're thinking along those lines, you're thinking that this storm is not caused just because certain clouds ran into other clouds and warm air and cold air ran into That, throwing somebody overboard, throwing the wares over the side, wouldn't change that. But these guys are now starting to come to a conclusion that the Lord, the God, that controls these things, he's in charge of this. Verse 11, They said unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought, and was tempestuous." And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea, and so shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Jonah is offering himself. There's a way to see that. He's volunteering to be thrown over. For what purpose? To save every other living soul that's in the ship. And they're like mankind. They're out in the middle of that ocean with no hope. Nobody can drink all that water. Nobody can swim back to the shore in that storm. They have no other hope. And Jonah, just like Jesus sleeping into the bottom of that ship, Jonah offers himself for the safety of the others. Now in Jesus' time, he comes up and what does he do to the storm? Well, in that story, he's the God that created that water And he speaks to it, and the Bible says, instantly, the sea calmed in Jesus' day. See, he's the creator. In this example, this picture painted for us, this is focusing on the sacrifice that has to be made, the offering for sin. The penalty that has to be paid to appease this problem. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring it to the land, but they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against, against them. They haven't thrown him over yet. And what are they trying to do? They're trying in their own strength to get out of this mess, to get this ship of their life safely to the shore. How'd they do? No chance. If mankind in any way in their flesh tries to solve our own problem of our sin to, re, to get out of this issue that we find ourselves in, you've got no hope. You had no chance. There's nothing you can do on your own to get out of that storm. You can't. And there's tons of people right now today that are trying to do just that. They're trying to be just a nice enough person. or Maybe they're trying to drink away or, or shoot away the guilt, the feeling, the shame of all the things that they think they've done, none of that stuff will ever work. There's one solution. They found their Jonah. We find our Jesus. Because Jesus is the one, and that's what the whole Bible teaches. That instantly when he was offered, what happened in heaven? It's what those angels came announcing to the shepherds when Jesus was born. Peace on earth and good will toward men. Goodwill from who? From heaven. When Jesus is offered as a sacrifice, now man's got a way out. And you can get to the Father and you can find your peace and your salvation and your redemption. Verse 14, Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not upon us what see what they're all sinners remember that they're in that ship and they're all saying well somebody we got a problem here this this is not a normal storm and they're casting lots to find out whose fault it is whose what's the issue here and they were all sinners And yet, the Holy Spirit puts in here in this story, it still refers to Jonah as his innocent blood. Because when he gets offered, what's it a picture of? It's a picture of the innocent dying for the guilty. We're all guilty. We all deserve death. We all deserve the corruption that sin pays out. But there was an innocent man that was found. And these men in the ship, are, they're, they're telling the Lord, now listen, the lot fell on him. You, we feel that you showed us, but we're going to throw him over. Now they're in the middle of a storm. And in that storm, that's sideways rain. They, they can't probably even see from one side of the ship to the other. You can't even hear. The waves are crashing. The wind's blowing. It's confusion. And they, want, they don't know that there might be something down there to save Jonah, all they know is when he goes overboard, they, to them, that's a death sentence. He's gone. No chance of survival. And so what, what are they saying? Lord, don't hold it against us that this innocent man is going overboard. I just find that very interesting. The details in the Scripture, an innocent gets thrown overboard, and look what happens. So they took up Jonah, cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. As soon as the innocent is offered as a sacrifice, what happens? The wrath of God is satisfied. And that storm goes away immediately. And that's the picture. When Jesus died for us, Something happened in the heavenly realms for us. There was a price that was paid. That blood sacrifice of the most precious thing in the universe, the creator of the universe in effect. See, that's the whole story of this Bible. That the creator himself, manifest himself, came into his creation to pay our penalty that we couldn't pay. It's an amazing story. Verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. It kind of sounds like they're becoming believers. When innocent blood is offered for their soul and their safety, men can get to God. Verse 17, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. I love that sentence. The plan of God is, it takes every detail. It covers every contingency. The plan of God, He had prepared this fish. God had prepared a way for mankind to get back to Him. And it was for His Son to enter into creation to become one of us. And the whole story of the Old Testament is that group of people, Israel, being kept alive preserved by God Himself because God made a promise to the earth that when He does come, He's going to be one of them. He's going to be Abraham's seed. He's going to be an Israelite. And then when He gets here, something happens with those Israelites. They reject Him. And that's the part we'll get to. The Lord had prepared this great fish, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That's an easy one, isn't it? What comes to your mind when you hear that? He was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, like we say, that's kind of easy. We know that when thinking about Jesus, three days, three three nights, he was in the grave when he was offered for sin. He spent three days and three nights there. Now, keep your finger here and let's go back to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, and verse 38. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. Now, this whole discussion is about a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it but what? The sign of the prophet Jonah. I, I always pause there because what's Jesus doing here? He's authenticating that the story of Jonah is absolutely true. There's a lot of Christians that need to reread verse 39. Jesus is not shy away from the story of a man being swallowed by a fish. In fact, he reaches back into the thousand of pages in the Old Testament. And he said, I'm not going to give you any sign except one. Except he chose this one as a sign. He says, but I will give you, at the end of verse 39, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. So I'm not giving you any sign except this one. Now, I have a question. What was the sign of Jonah? Are we to believe that Jonah had a picket sign and he was holding out something and he was marching back and forth on the beach? What does it mean that the sign of Jonah? Well, Jesus answers that in the next words. He says, for as Jonah was. In other words, the other English translation of that is, so as Jonah was, or because just like Jonah. Jesus is now saying that the sign is this following comparison. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That sounds like Jesus thought that crazy story that he got swallowed by a fish. It sounds like he thinks that's true. And he does. See, he authenticates everything in the Old Testament. That's not a small point in today's world. Because today's world is trying to distance itself from crazy-sounding miracles. But not Jesus. He reaches back. He doesn't just authenticate this. He pulls it forward into his day to say, that was a sign to those people. Now I want to take two minutes to concentrate on that idea. Jesus called what happened with Jonah, quote, a sign. What was the sign? Well, Jesus said the fact that he spent a specific period of time, three days and three nights, in the whale's belly, that that was a sign. Now, what do we all know in Jesus' example? What does that represent in one word when he comes out? The resurrection. And Jesus is telling that uh, that generation of Nineveh, they saw a resurrection. You see, when those sailors threw Jonah over, for all they know, he's, he's dead as a doornail. There's no chance. Twenty minutes later, he's done. Gone. Forget it. We're not looking for him. Maybe find his body washed up somewhere. He's dead. And people, for all we know, who knows? There are some scholars, that, the way that you read the Bible, maybe he did die, and coming out of there was a picture of the resurrection. Literally. In either case, Jesus is saying that I'm going to be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth, And we all know what that means now. That when he came out, that's right, the picture of his resurrection. He came out of the heart of the earth. If you really think about that, Jesus is saying that that sign for Jonah. Because we know how the story of Jonah ends. What happened when he went in and preached to those people? They repented. They repented at the resurrection, in quotes, sign of Jonah coming back to life. Whether somebody was on the beach and saw some fish spit him up there and went running in and told, or nobody knew that that's how he came out of the water. In either case, Nineveh repented. What happened in Jesus' time? Matthew 27. Let's go look at The last things, these same Pharisees and scribes who just said, hey, why don't you show us a sign? Remember that's what we just read? Scribes and the Pharisees, they're there and they say, show us a sign. Matthew 27 and the same verse, verse 39. And they that passed by, this is Jesus hanging on the cross, they reviled him, wagging their heads. They're mocking him. And they're saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now, verse 40 is pretty revealing. When they say that you have said, Destroy the temple and you'll build it in three days. Remember when Jesus said that? What was he talking about? His own body. That if you destroy this thing... Again, he gave the same specific amount of time to compare it to Jonah. In three days, it will be rebuilt. And they said, this thing was 46 years in building, and you think you're going to rebuild it? He's talking about coming back. That resurrection. And these guys are bringing it up again, whether they know it or not. If you be the Son of God, come down from the cross. So they're saying... "You." You say these signs that you have, will we'll believe you. You come down from that cross. See, likewise, verse 41, the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and the elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and what? will believe him. They're on record now. They're on record. They have sworn in court that if you show us the sign, but what, they're, what, what, what were they asking? You just come down off the cross now. People, if he would have done that, they would have tried to put him right back up there. They hated him. They were plotting to kill him all the time. See, they're lying in a way. They, they don't want him to come down from the cross. And Jesus does something much more difficult than come down off of a bleeding cross. What does he do? He submits to death while up there and goes past the turnaround point. The fail-safe is try to keep you alive and if he gets you off the cross, give you some antibodies, some extra blood, plasma, we can keep you alive. and Then you'll be okay. What happens if you take your last breath, you give up the ghost and you die? See, humankind, we know that's it. That's death. You don't come back from that. So Jesus goes past the fail-safe point he does something much, much, much more difficult. He submits to death for a certain period of time—three days and three nights—just like he told them. And when he comes back, how many of these same people said, "Okay, we, we went on. We, we believe." Those chief priests, the elders, the scribes—those people that said, "You come off the cross, and we'll believe." Not one of them. In fact, who did they place at the tomb of his dead body? They got soldiers to try to make sure he doesn't come out of there. See, they're not in good faith saying, show us a sign and we'll believe. Not at all. They're trying to make sure he stays in there. And when he comes out, how many of those people do we have on record as saying, "I'm, I'm in now? I am, I'm a good faith believer. You did what you said you would do, and now I'm a believer. I'm a follower. Zero. So what Je- Jesus is saying to those people when he said, I'll give you the sign of Jonah. Those people in Nineveh repented. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 12, that the generation of Nineveh, that when the, res- uh, when the judgment comes, when everybody is brought back and we have to stand before the Lord, those people in Nineveh are going to do what to Jesus' generation? He said, they're going to condemn you because they're better. That wicked, evil place of Nineveh, and that's what the story of Jonah starts out with. Their wickedness had come up before God. And that's why God sent Jonah to take care of that wickedness, to give him a message. Those wicked people repented and turned, but the people that God sent Jesus to, and Jesus is the one that draws that comparison. He went the same route he went three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, and when he came back, they did not repent. Now there were some converts after that that's what the book of Acts is about. they go preaching Jesus, and they tell him, tell the people of that day how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies that the Bible is, that has been speaking to us about a certain person coming, it's clearly Jesus. And one of the evidences, one of the power points in that presentation to get people to believe would the sign of Jonah. He told us he'd be gone for three days and that he'd be back. And when he did that, that's part of what Jesus said in Matthew 5.17. Not one jot or one tittle shall pass away until... It's all fulfilled. All of those pictures that God had laid out in advance, that Jesus himself drew attention to, check mark, check mark, check mark. See, I look at the way God wrote the Bible. He's like a lawyer in court proving his case. And what's the case? What's the charge? Same thing that Jesus was charged with in his trial. Are you the Son of God? Everything in the Bible screams yes. Everything in the Bible, every name, every number, every place name, it's all designed to get the reader, this thing all points toward Jesus being the Son of God. Let's go back to Jonah. Jonah. Chapter 2, Jonah is in the belly of that fish. And he verse 1 in chapter 2 starts out with some very important words. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord. That's when you want to do some good praying. When you're in the worst of the worst. Now I find something very interesting here. Verse 2 describes some language and As Jonah's praying and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me out of the belly of hell, cried I, and thou heardest my voice. I find that phrase, the belly of hell. If you think about that, that is mixing both stories of Jonah and Jesus. What did Jesus compare the place where he spent his three days to? He said the heart of the earth. As Jonah spent three days in the whale's belly, and he drew the exact comparison, my three days will be spent where? In the heart of the earth. Well, what, what, what's down there in the heart of the earth? There's a chance it might be hell. See, the New Testament tells us that in Ephesians 4, 7 through 10, I think, that before he ascended, he first descended He descended, it says, into the lower parts of the earth. In Jonah's story, why would the Holy Spirit record the writing and use the phrase, the belly of hell? Well, the belly is clearly, belongs to a whale, doesn't it? But the hell reference, that's not in a whale. We use the language that it, quote, kind of feels like hell, in a place like that. But that's not what the Holy Spirit necessarily is all that it's saying here. He's saying that the fish's belly on Jonah's part and being in hell on Jesus' part, that's the comparison. He He descended to pay the penalty for our sin. It's where the Bible said he led captivity captive. He preached to those spirits. Now, Get down to verse 6. I went down, Jonah's still praying, I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. Well, that's a strange thing to say. He's in the ocean. But what's that giving you reference to? What's that making you think of? The bottoms of the, where are the bottoms of the mountains? We now know through science and, and geology, mountains come be, that these mountains Earth plates push together and they push the earth up. He's spe- this verse is speaking of something below the earth's surface. With her bars was about me forever, yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. Remember what we're comparing. Jonah went to the belly of the whale. Jesus went to the lower parts of the earth. And this verse is talking about lower parts of the earth. The bottoms of the mountains with her bars about me forever and then it uses the language yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption. When you're talking about death what does the word corruption invoke? Decay. Because this body that we are housed in, this thing, when it doesn't have blood flowing through it, regenerating it a little bit every day, new cells being born, this sucker decays. And it doesn't take all that long. He is talking here about being in the depths of the earth and he's praying to God, thou hast brought up my life. That is almost King James language for resurrection. He's talking about his life being saved from corruption. Remember what the New Testament says about Jesus? Thou wilt not suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. Quote from the Old Testament. He's not going to be in that grave long enough to decay, he's not coming out smelly like Lazarus. He will not see his precious to decay. But I will, verse 9, I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Even there, the word salvation gets snuck in. Now we know in the example of Jesus, it's a picture of him paying the penalty for our sin. Which leads to, ultimately, salvation. And it's mentioned with Jonah down there. And Jonah gets obedient, and he's, he, I'm going to do what you ask, Lord. And the Lord spake, in verse 10, unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. You remember what happened when Jesus was resurrected. Matthew chapter 27, it describes Jesus giving up the ghost. And we're, 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 gonna, we're done there in Jonah. Let's go finish in Matthew chapter 27. And we'll finish on these couple verses. This is worth seeing with our eyes. Th- these are two or three of the most amazing verses in their description. Matthew chapter 27 and starting at verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, he yielded up the ghost. So if you've ever watched the movie with Jesus dying, his head drops. This is where he has given up the ghost, he releases his spirit, and he dies. The next verse. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two, from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. There's a great earthquake because the Son of God is dying. And God is going to tell the whole world, look at the signs around you. There was darkness over the land while Jesus was hanging on the cross. In the middle of the day, That darkness came over the land. He dies and the temple veil splits in two. And that's important because that's the Holy of Holies back there. A place where mankind isn't even allowed to go. But the picture of him paying the penalty for sin, what's the message now? There's nothing separating us. You can get here. In verse 52, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept Now that's not talking about taking naps. The New Testament uses the phrase sleeping, sleeping in Christ. Jesus even said about Lazarus, he's not dead, he's just sleeping. The New Testament uses that language in a dozen places. That those that sleep in Christ, that means they're dead, but they were believers. And because they were believers, in a way they're not really dead. Their body's just sleeping, their spirit's alive. And they're in heaven with the Lord. He talks about it as taking a nap because what's going to happen to that body at some point? That thing is going to be resurrected. And just like it says in verse 52, the many bodies of these saints which slept, they were dead. They were dead Christians, dead believers in God. What happened? They arose That word arose, you can put a fish vomiting out. When Jonah got resurrected, when he got spit out up onto that beach, these graves vomited out their contained people. Verse 53, they came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Can you imagine that? Think of the newspapers that next day. People like Isaiah and Ezekiel. Who knows who all it was that came out of their graves and went through the streets of Jerusalem. Not a small deal. This is why when you read this in some account, what does that Roman soldier, the centurion, say after he watches all this? He sees the temple torn in two. He sees the earthquake. He may have even seen, because if you go to Jerusalem... There's an entire mountainside across, probably from where Jesus was crucified, that is still to this day ancient graves. You can see across the valley there are these white limestone boxes that are there to this day. You would have been able to see it that they came out of the graves. And the centurion, the Roman centurion who was in charge of the soldiers that crucified him, what's he say? Surely, this was the Son of God. Even he came to the conclusion that all this stuff happening, the sun turning black, the earthquake, the veil of the temple, the graves spitting out their inhabitants, something serious just happened. The Bible is unbelievable. It, it's, we use that word in common language to mean that it's just remarkable every detail even in the story of Jonah points to the fact that Jesus is exactly who he said he was and even he used that story, the crazy story that today nobody wants to talk about we don't don't read Jonah because we don't want to be thought of as goofy Jesus used that as his one and only sign to an evil generation that I am who I say I am The people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. In effect, a resurrected man. The people in Jesus' time as a whole did not. And as Jesus said, there's a lot greater one here with you guys than Jonah back then with Nineveh. And when Jesus came out of that grave... There were not those people waiting there to shake his hand and say, Sir, you won me over. You're right. You're right. I'm wrong. See, the story of Jonah is a picture of the hard-heartedness of mankind. Because you remember what was Jonah's response when Nineveh did repent? He got angry. He he was mad. He told God, This is why I didn't want to go. Because I knew that you are merciful and that you would turn from your judgment. See, the story in that is, it's God's the one that is the merciful. He's the one that has pity. It's mankind's heart that has a big issue. Even a prophet of repentance was mad at what? A whole nation repenting. That's the hard-heartedness, the wickedness in man. But God wanted it turned. God allowed them. That's why he sent the man and his sign was sign of resurrection coming out of basically the grave. And if you repent at that, you're just fine with God. Father, we pray that we would take this idea with us and let it invigorate and inflame our soul and our mind, our heart. We pray, Lord, that you would embolden us in our generation. Help us, Lord, to be witnesses, to be ambassadors for you, to carry your name to this generation in our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.